And um, got just two chapters left. We're going to chapter 16 with Mark. So uh, almost done. I think we'll probably land this thing as far as the crucifixion right around Christmas. So it should be a good time uh, how it all lines with the end of the year. Uh, let's go and have a word of prayer together. Father, I just want to thank you again for the day. And Lord, I want to just ask for your help this morning. Pray that you bless the message as you see fit. Lord, I do thank you for each one that's here. And I just pray that, um, Lord, you'd be gracious to us this morning to speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to learn what we need to learn, to get a hold of what we need to get a hold of. And Father, I just pray you'd have your way in the service. I pray that Christ would be exalted in our lives, Lord. Too often he's laid aside. Lord, he's set on the back burner of our lives. Our attention seems to not be on him in every part of our life. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we continue to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Lord, it would cause us, cause us not to lay him further back in our lives, but Lord, to put him at the center of our lives, that he would become the preeminent one as he deserves that position uh, in our lives. And I pray you'd help today to accomplish that. Lord, it could be that somebody's here today and they don't know Christ as their personal Savior today. Lord, we know that Scripture teaches us it's impossible to please you without faith, and so faith is that right of access, I suppose, uh, if I want to say it that way, but faith is that way to enter into your family, Lord, as we place our faith and trust in Christ. And it could be today, Lord, that there's one who's lost who needs to place their faith and trust in Jesus. I pray that you'd help them with that, Lord, and may your will be accomplished. May you help now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Mark 14. We're looking at verses 32 through 42. And uh, we're going to be learning about some great lessons from Gethsemane, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane was on the, um, really on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And the garden was in the Mount of Olives. So you've got, if you could imagine from an aerial view, the city of Jerusalem with the walls that surrounded it. You'd have the Valley of Kidron on the eastern side. Then you'd have the Mount of Olives. And in the Mount of Olives, you'd have the Garden of Gethsemane. This was a place that Jesus would often go to pray. And uh, it was a place that um, it's believed that because the exact location is not known, it's believed that this was a place with olive trees and an olive press simply because of the name Gethsemane, which refers to an oil press of some sort. So this was a place that was frequented by priests and prophets of the past, as well as the Lord Jesus, in order for one reason to grab the oil that they might go forward and anoint the ones that God would bring forth to do his work. So it's a very special place, and the Mount of Olives is a central location in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, but also throughout God's uh, dealings with humanity. It's always been this return to the Mount of Olives. And in the future, when Christ descends down from heaven and returns to earth, take a guess where he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. And uh, you can read about that in the book of Zechariah. So very significant place. And here he is in the Mount of Olives, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the setting in our text is pretty fitting simply because of the timing of the event and some circumstances in the situation that Jesus finds himself in the middle of. It's dark. It's late. Uh, they just finished up what's called the Passover meal. We talked about that. I believe it was last week we went into that. And they just finished up the meal. So what do you want to do after you get done eating late at night after you've walked and worked all day long? You're probably getting ready to wind down and go to bed, right? The eyes are going to get heavy. 
And so they finished up the Passover meal, which I'm sure was absolutely delicious. They took the fatted calf and they, they uh, killed it and then ate that whole thing and had a great time of fellowship. Well, now they've left that upper room in Jerusalem and they've made their way from the city back up to the Mount of Olives. That's a pretty good trip, but it was all walking or maybe riding on the back of a donkey. So you know they're tired and it's late. And here they are tired, and then they're in this garden. And in the garden, you're going to find, as we read our text here in a minute, you're going to find that there's not a lot of people around. Kind of reminds us of almost like a lonely, isolated situation. And it kind of reminds us of, of Christ almost being separated out from the world during this great trial that lies ahead. If you've ever had something like maybe a surgery, Okay, anybody here ever had a big surgery that you were a little fearful about that you had to go through? A couple heads have gone up, okay. And um, that's something that the day prior, you know the nerves that you're dealing with and uh, the anxiety and the, uh, just the, the questions of what is going to happen. And, you know, it's that feeling of anticipation for the, for the outcome of that surgery that's coming up. Or how about this one? Have you ever lost a loved one or knew somebody in your family? Uh, maybe they weren't that close to you, but when that person died, it was somewhat tragic. And you knew that when you had to go the next day to confront the still living family members, it was going to be hard. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? What's going to be the outcome of this? You know, the anticipation is killer in itself. And here with the Lord, I want you to, I share that with you because I want you to kind of wrap your mind around what he's anticipating being the God who knows all things, knowing when his death has been appointed to happen. And here he is in the garden anticipating this crucifixion that's going to happen in just a few hours. And you could maybe, and it's a small part, but maybe we could get a little sense of what he's feeling as we read through the text here. But this morning, let's read our text. If you will, stand to your feet, verses 32 through 42. Y'all don't mind my voice. If you hear it, it is kind of going in and out. I lost it Thursday morning, and then it came back, and then we did the sheetrock, and I think the dust from the sheetrock maybe brought it back uh, to this point. So it's a little weak this morning. But verses 32 through 42, um, if you will, follow along with me as I try to read here. <clears throat> and they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed. It means he was, uh, he was overwhelmed with great trouble. And to be very heavy, felt a lot of anguish during this time. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and he findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. 
And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. I humbly ask that you would help us with the message and help my uh, voice, Lord, just to be what it needs to be, to, compute, to uh, be able to preach your word and communicate your truth this morning. And I pray you'd help us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus brings his disciples to, a pray, uh, to this place to pray. Now, out of those disciples, he selects three apostles, Peter, James, and John. You'll know James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee. They're also referred to as the sons of thunder. Apparently, they were very bold and zealous in their preaching ministry. And then Peter, he becomes a pillar of the church, especially in the book of Acts. But we also learned that those same men had told the Lord when the Lord said in our study last week, when the Lord said, tonight you'll be offended because of me, they said, not us, Lord. Not us. We won't do it. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me thrice. And we'll talk about that later on in our studies. But here you've got those men. Jesus brings them forth with him away from the, the larger crowd of disciples. He, he goes farther along into the Garden of Gethsemane with these three men, Peter, James, and John. He asks them to pray. And then he goes forward a little bit farther along, and then he prays. And as he's praying, we find so many things going on here, but the Lord seems to pray for three hours total. That's quite a prayer. Anybody here ever spent three hours praying consecutively? Uh, it's hard to do. Prayer is one of the hardest things to do in your Christian life. People say, oh, yeah, I pray all the time. I doubt you do. I doubt you do. Not like they do in the Scriptures. Not like we should pray. Uh, you might pray over a meal or you might throw a couple words up to the heavens, but to pray like we read in the Bible, it takes work. Trust me, it is one of the hardest things in the Christian life to do. The Lord prays for three hours about one event. Each time he returns back to his apostles. Every hour he prays for an hour, he returns back to those three apostles to examine their prayer efforts, and sadly, each time he finds them asleep and not praying. And then he goes back out and he prays another hour. He comes back again, they're asleep again and not praying. And then he goes out a third hour, and finally when he comes back, we've read the text, he said, well, the hour has come. And he moves on. But I think from our passages this morning, from the three hours of prayer that are happening, I think in one verse what I found was just simply three great lessons that we can learn from the Garden of Gethsemane. From one verse, believe it or not. That'll be verse 38. The first one is the fact that we learn from these passages. Now hear me here. The greatest work of a Christian believer is in fact to watch and to pray. Can you believe that? It's not to build homes for the homeless. It's not to feed the hungry. It's not to clothe the, the, the ones who uh, are not clothed. It's not to go and fix the plumbing of some third world country. Did you know the greatest work of a Christian believer is to watch and to pray? And in verse 38, we really see that highlight. Look at verse 38 with me. The Lord comes back from his prayer efforts, and he, well, first off, start in verse 37. He finds his apostles sleeping. He says, Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? I can't believe you're asleep. Couldst not thou watch for just one hour? And in the watching, he's referring to watching and praying. And then he says in verse 38, he says, watch ye and pray. The one thing, yes. Now, I want you to think about this. Use, use your imagination for a little bit. 
Christ has already told them that someone was going to betray him that night. Christ had already said his enemy was waiting to, to take him that he might be killed. So if there was anything more important than watching and praying, I believe Christ would have told those three men who he knew were very faithful, they were within his inner circle, he would have said, men, why don't you go get some torches and light up the garden so that we can see the enemy coming? Men, why don't you go get some swords and some shields and equip yourselves so that when we see the enemy coming, we can defend ourselves? Men, why don't you go get me a nice stallion, a horse that has been fed well, full of energy, and I'll jump on that horse and I'll ride it out of this garden whenever the enemy comes. There are so many things that Christ could have said to his apostles that night, and yet what does he say? Watch and pray. At the very last hours of the Lord Jesus' ministry, the greatest teaching, the greatest lesson that he could give his apostles was that this is your greatest work. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. In this, we have, first off, watch. What does that mean? It means to be attentive. It means to be alert. It means to be awake. It means to be watchful and aware. I find, uh, now that my girls are getting a little older, and I try to catch myself from doing this, but I find that as they get older, I am less watchful whenever we maybe are, are out in public and we're walking through a store more and more. And I don't know if it's because Arabella is so much older than Adelia, and I trust that Arabella is going to be able to let us know if something were happening. But when both of those girls were real small, if we went to a public store, they were not leaving my sight. I was extremely watchful. Nope, you're staying right there. Don't leave that aisle because I'm on this aisle. And now we'll go to the grocery store and I'll trust Arabella enough to go around the corner of the aisle and to get something with her sister. So I'm, I'm probably, that's probably a bad thing. But the idea of being watchful is like that, being careful, keeping your eyes open, being alert. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 5. What are we to be watchful about? Now we know earlier in Mark 13, Jesus told us to watch for his coming, but that's not what he's referring to here. And if you'll follow along with me in this message, I believe it's all going to connect together. So try not to miss the various points uh, because it all, each one will build on the other. 1 Peter chapter 5, look at verse 8. The idea of being watchful is to be alert, to be aware. And look what it says in verse 8. It says, be sober. That means uh, uh, alert, awake, uh, settled, of a sound mind. Be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for somebody to devour. He's hungry. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same affliction are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we're to be watchful because there's an enemy who's roaming around like a roaring lion who is seeking a life that he can devour and destroy, and especially those who are children of God. He wants to ruin your testimony. So we're to be watchful. Now, I often find in the Scriptures that there is uh, the, the number three seems to be very significant often. You know, man is a trichotomy, and then God is a trinity, and these sorts of things. So I often use this same outline when referring to things concerning our spiritual life. Where can, be, we, where can we be watchful? All right, number one, inward. We must be watchful inward. What do I mean? I'm saying your relationship with God is something that you ought to be watchful over. Don't compromise it. Don't neglect it. 
Don't let other things distract you from having a relationship with your Creator. That's between you and Him. And He's got a certain way that we approach Him. We know that from Scripture. Now, don't try to be like some out here and take the uh, mysticisms and, and these other things of the world and use it to get close to God. You won't do it. Think about Uzziah in the Old Testament. He tried to move the uh, ark of God in the wrong way, and what happened to him? He was zapped and he was killed instantly. God only asks us ever to come to him according to his way because he is the creator. He's the, he's the establisher of the way, okay? But when it comes to me being watchful, and even these men, these three men, Peter, James, and John, they were to be watchful inwardly. Instead, what were they? They were the exact opposite. They were boastful inwardly. Prior, Jesus said, tonight you'll, you'll actually stumble over me and you'll deny me. They said, no, sir, we won't do that. You know what they stopped doing? They stopped watching inwardly. They stopped taking care of that relationship between them and their creator, not realizing that there's a roaring lion who is Satan who's walking about seeking whom he may devour, and he could, in fact, be devouring you right now. How's your relationship with the Lord today? Is it everything that it's ever been? Is it greater today than it was when you first knew the Lord? Or is it weaker today? What's happened is you've stopped watching. You've got to watch inwardly. We all do. That's the greatest work of a believer, to watch, to watch. Watch inwardly. Your relationship with God is so important. Then the second one is the outward watch. We watch outwardly. You know who we're watching? We're watching others. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I'm saying we're watching for the care of others. Christ looked out on the multitude. He had compassion on them because they were scattered about having no shepherd. They needed someone to give them direction. If we're to be watchful in this world, we would watch our, our friends and our family first and foremost. I think those are the ones we should be the most watchful for. Your children, watch your children. Watch your spouse, meaning know how to pray for them. Know how to help them. When you see them falling away from the Lord, get in there and be a help to them. Don't just go and gossip and talk bad about them. Be a help. Be watchful for others. And then there's times even in that watching, not only do we help, but we guard, and then we also have to rebuke at times. Now, when you rebuke somebody, that simply means that you would bring God's truth to the attention of someone who is out of God's will. Now, whether or not they accept it, that's between them and the Lord. You can't force anybody. Uh, I can't force any of y'all to hear me this morning. You, you might have better things to think about. I don't know. And I can't force anybody to take what I'm teaching you right now and apply it in your life. Can't do that. But what I can do is sow the seed, and I believe this morning it'll fall in some good ground somewhere in this building. But for the sake of others, there are times you have to rebuke other people. Some people have grown lazy in their Christianity. I know that uh, along the way, since I've been in this church and even churches prior, I have watched various people, not just this church, but I'm saying just throughout ministry, that were once closer to the Lord and now they're farther away. What happened? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual war that's going on. They were not watchful enough in their, in their lives. They were prideful and they didn't uh, take heed to God's word and didn't apply it. And therefore now they've been overcome by the enemy who is the roaring lion who has sought about whom he may devour, and that just happened to be that person. And now they are not today what they once were. See, watchfulness is so important. To walk close to the Lord, we must be watchful. And then there's the upward watch, the upward watch, and that has to do with me watching for the coming of my Lord. Let me take you over to 2 Timothy. We were here in this passage in Sunday school class, but I, I think it still applies uh, even for this, uh, this message. 
Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. The Lord is coming. He is on His way. He could arrive at any moment. Many people are denying that now. There are even Christians that have spiritualized the coming of Christ and they're claiming that He's already come. Uh, don't buy into that. You won't read that in your Bible. He is on His way. That's what the Bible says. John concluded the last book of your Bible. You go look it up yourself with these words, Even so come Lord Jesus. He was looking for the Lord Jesus to come. So Jesus is on His way. And the world will wax worse and worse prior to that great day when the Lord does return. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, look at this verse with me. It says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Now that day is the coming of the Lord. And not to me only. Paul was the writer here. He wasn't, though he was speaking of this great thing that he was going to receive, this crown, this reward, he says, but it's not just for me. Watch this. It's actually unto all them also that love is appearing. Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? Is your life in line? Have you been watchful? If he were to return right now, would he find you faithful, fervent? Would he find you as his, his servant who's trying to live for him on a regular basis? How would he find you? Or, or would he find you lazy? I've got every excuse under the sun not to do these things that I know I should be doing for the Lord. See, that's where we're not being watchful. And the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, these last hours, He comes to His apostles, He says, watch, watch, it's important. It's the greatest work of a believer is to be a watcher. Watchful over your inward self, watchful over the outward, the people around you, watchful over the coming of the Lord upward. We should be watchful. But then this, the, the next one is the hardest one. And it's pray. He said, watch and pray. The greatest work of a believer is to pray. What is praying? Matthew 7, 7 would tell us it's asking, seeking, and knocking. We, uh, we had a men's breakfast fellowship yesterday, and I do have to commend the men. You guys have been so faithful uh, with attending that. Thank you so much for the great attendance. But we had a men's breakfast fellowship yesterday, and... Uh, Sean had, had shared a thought about, well, he was trying to figure out what he wanted to share with the men, and he landed on this, seeking after the Lord. And then this passage came up. How do you seek? Well, I believe it was Ronnie had brought up, well, you ask, you seek, and you knock. This is all a part of our prayer work. And this is so hard because often we will ask, but we don't seek and we don't knock. Or we wait till the very last minute when we're in the midst of crisis to actually pray to the Lord. None of those are the, are, the, are the healthy way to pray. Prayer is certainly hard, but it is something that we have to do. When it comes to asking, what are we doing? Well, we're asking for things, right? You ever gone to God and asked Him for anything? Okay, maybe a couple of you. Okay, all right. Amen. All right, all right so I know I've asked Him for a whole lot of stuff along the way. I've had to. I tell you, I can't do it on my own. I learned that a long time ago. So I'm always asking. But you know what else i got to do? You've got to seek. And the seeking is going after something. There were times I would ask God. I didn't get an answer. I'd ask Him again. I didn't get an answer. I'd ask Him. Finally, I started seeking. I said, God, I need to know about this. I want to know what's happening. Please, show me something. And the idea is I'm seeking further. I'm going after this thing that I'm asking God for. You know what that shows? It shows dependence. 
my littlest girl, boy, she's, she's a seeker. She'll come and she'll ask me one time, Daddy, can I have a piece of candy? And some of y'all know, I'll be standing talking to one of y'all, and I'll be talking like this, and I'll hear, and I'll, I'll kind of ignore her because she's not supposed to interrupt the conversation. She'll be like, Daddy, can I have a piece of candy? Daddy, can I have a piece of candy? Daddy, can I? And she'll be pulling on my jacket. Daddy, can I have a piece of candy? You know what she did? She went from asking to seeking. She now wants, she is pulling on my jacket saying, please, I know that you're the guy I need to talk to about this because I can't go do it on my own and mom's going to say no, so I need to seek. And she starts tugging on the jacket a little bit. She's seeking. Prayer's like that. Why don't we seek? It's probably due to a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. I got some things to say about that here in a minute. And then there's the knocking. What does that mean? It means, God, I need this. I need this. I know there's been times, I, I, I recall it was a few years ago, I locked myself out of the house and um, probably taking the dog. I don't even know why I did it. But somehow or another, you know, you got those little turn locks on the door, and it's you, if you're on autopilot, you just, boom, and there it is, it's locked. Oh, man, I just locked myself out of the door or out of the house, and it was cold outside, and it was late, and everybody was inside, and you know what I had to do? Hey, I locked myself out. Will you let me in? I'm knocking. Why? Because I want to go in. I want them to help me. I, I have no way to get in the house. I can't break in through the window. Uh, they were put in too well. Thank you, Tom, for doing that. Okay, I can't break in through the door. Those were put in too well. They, they got like a, a metal uh, casing, you know. They're pretty nice doors. The only way I was getting in is if Maria was kind enough to look through there and see my little puppy dog eyes and say, okay, I'll let him in. But, you know, she probably, I'm, I'm pretty sure knowing her, she probably just, did like this, probably had to get a stool because she can't see out that window. Get a stool and she looked, <laughs> then she smirked at me a little bit as the icicles were starting to form on my face, you know, and I'm out there just shivering. Finally, she let me in. But you know what I was doing the whole time? I was knocking. I was knocking. Lord, I need this. Lord, I need you in my life. I need your presence. Lord, I need you to heal this person. Lord, I need you to give me wisdom. Lord, I need you. See, that's the knocking. That means I am, when I get to the point of knocking in my prayers, I am absolutely dependent on God because I can't get it myself, and therefore I'm knocking. That's how we should be praying. That's, that's the most important part of our Christian lives is to watch and to pray. But you know, oftentimes God has various ways of answering prayer. And I got four I'll give you here. I know I'm giving you a lot of little outlines. Hope you're writing some of these down. Maybe they'll be help to you. You know, sometimes God says no. You ever heard it? Have you ever had God just say no? You just knew that's not happening. I prayed wrong on that one. Yeah. But then sometimes God will say, slow. He wants you to slow down a little bit. It's not quite time for you to receive what you're asking for. Slow down. Slow down. And then the third one, if he wants you to slow down, often what he's doing is he's saying, grow. I want you to grow a little bit. You're not quite where you need to be just yet. I was talking to Sean about that yesterday, I believe. We were talking about that in his lesson because he said the first couple of lessons with the men, they came quickly, and this, this last one, it seemed like it, it, it took a little bit more time for him to get it, but he had to seek after the Lord to get it. Well, you know, if I go to my child and I'm constantly just giving my child money, some of y'all might do that. I'm telling you, you've ruined your children or you're going to ruin them. You're just constantly just handing the money out over and over and over. You know what that does? It creates a spoiled child. Spoiled brat. You just over and over and over and over. You spoon feed them. 
And you know what they never learn to do? They never learn to become dependent on themselves. They never become mature in their entire lives. They will be immature, always depending on you to give them a handout. God doesn't work that way. Our Heavenly Father is so much better. He'll withhold just so that we might mature spiritually. And when we mature spiritually, then here comes the blessings flooding right in behind it. He says, all right, now you're ready to receive. And then he'll withhold again just so we'll mature spiritually a little bit more. And then here it comes. Once you've grown, here comes the blessing. Now I'll bring it into your life. God has perfect timing in that way. And that's why you ought not get mad at God. You ought to thank him that he doesn't always answer the prayer immediately because he's trying to strengthen your faith. He's trying to grow you so that you might get closer to him. And then finally, the fourth one, when it comes to his answers in prayer, he'll say, go. Now's the time to go forward and to do that thing that you're trying to do. Our Heavenly Father is very faithful. There's a lot we can learn from Him. I, I sure hope you're learning from Him, but He's always consistent in the way that He treats everybody. And don't buy into some of this mess out here about naming and claiming these, these television preachers with this prosperity gospel mess. All that is, uh, that is carnality. It's materialism. It's of the world. Um, and it appeals to the lust of the flesh. And that is not the way of our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father might not give you a lot of material things, but He will strengthen your faith if you will walk with Him. And you will find that there's a greater treasure in knowing God than there is in having all the money in this world that we live in. I promise you. Jesus' prayer. Think about the way Jesus prayed in our passage. Go back to Mark 14 with me. We note in the passage that He prayed three times. Did y'all notice that? Three times. It says He went and He prayed for an hour. He came to his apostles. Are you praying? No, they were asleep. He went and prayed for another hour. And then he comes back again. Are you praying? No, they're asleep. He prays for another hour. He prayed three different times, three different hours he was praying. And in those three different hours that he was praying, he had three things that he mentions in his prayer. Now, I'm going to try to find my place here again. Uh, verse 35. Let's start there. Verse 35. And he went forward a little and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, what's the real prayer? Well, it's in verse 36. And he said, that's Jesus, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. These are, this is a hard prayer. You say, but it's so simple. But boy, it's so hard. The first thing is he recognizes that all things are possible with God. That was the first part of his prayer. Every single thing is possible with you, God. I know you could answer my prayer right now. I know you could restore everything right now. You could make it all right. All things are possible with you. And he prayed it three times in that same manner. Then he goes to the next part of his prayer and he says, take away this cup from me. The cup refers to a divine appointment that Jesus had. All of us have divine appointments in life. One is, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. We all have a divine appointment of death. We've all had a divine appointment of life. You were born into this world. Each one of us have a birthday. And on that special day, that was God's divine appointment for you to come into this life, physically. Then all of us had a divine appointment for our salvation. There was one day where finally, when you heard the gospel by faith, you believed it, and you were born again into the family of God. Thank God for His gospel message. And then there are other divine appointments that take place. In the case of Jesus, the cup was his divine appointment to go to the cross there at Calvary 
and die for the sins of the world. Look what he says in verse 36. To conclude, he says, but nevertheless. You know, he just said, God, all things are possible to you. He just said, Blake, he just said, take this cup away from me. But then what does he say at the end of it? He says, but nevertheless, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. He was okay. He was, he was fine with whatever the will of the Father would be. That's hard for people to pray like that. Very seldom do you find people that come to that place in their life when they are faced with a very, very, very hard situation. If they say, God, you know my flesh has these desires, and I want this to change. But And Father, I know you can do it, but Lord, honestly, not my will, but what yours be done. Very seldom, especially in this day and age, do people come to that point. If anything, what they do is you have people that pray, and when they don't get their prayers answered, then they just denounce God. He didn't give me what I wanted. I mean, they, God's treated like a genie. Let me rub that lamp and I get three wishes. God doesn't work that way. He's a loving heavenly father. He moves according to his will. All things work together for good for those that love him, for them who are the called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's true, I promise you. So here's the prayer that Jesus had, but I want you to note four things in his prayer. Four things. The first one is the relationship. Look back at verse 36. He says, Abba. Father. He's really saying Father, Father, but the word Abba was a, was a um, Chaldean word, I believe is, uh, is what they believe it was, and it was probably during the captivity that the word was picked up, and then what happened was the word was an emphatic way of saying Father, not just Father em emptily saying it, but in this, in, with this great intensity. So what happened in the Jewish culture is they started to take Abba and include it in all their prayers, similar to how we pray. You know, sometimes we'll say, you'll hear me, I'll say, Father, we ask you to help us today with a service. When well, the Jewish culture, they would have said, Abba. Now, in the writings here, we have Abba, Father. And what they're doing is they're using that, that Chaldean word, and then they're using that Greek word to, to give the interpretation of what Abba means. But the fact that he says, Abba, that shows that it wasn't as if Jesus just went forward nonchalant-like, and he was like, Father, I know all things are possible for you, and I mean, this cup is not something I really want to deal with. Would you let that pass from me? But, you know, whatever. Not my will, but thine be done. Sometimes that's how we can address our Heavenly Father, if you know Him this morning as your Father. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus went forth, and it said He fell on the ground. Did you see that? Verse 35. He fell on the ground, and He prayed. He fell on the ground. I mean, He just fell. He was so... At a point, he'd just eaten, so he wasn't weak physically, but emotionally and spiritually, he was so distraught with what was about to happen in front of him that he goes forward and he could, you can imagine as he's walking away from the three apostles, he couldn't go very far. He said he only went a little ways and he just fell on the ground and the first word he could muster up was Abba, Father. He had a relationship with God. That was not the first time he had ever called on God. Jesus, throughout his ministry, was marked by prayer. Every time some great miracle took place, reading the scriptures prior to that, he was in prayer. 
He kept close contact with Abba, Father. And at this time, during this great trial in his life, he was able to show us all that this is the great work of a believer. Have a relationship with the Father. And be able to call on Him in such a way, Abba, Father, I need you. I need you. There was a relationship. The other one I kind of touched on earlier, there's the reality that He accepted. And it's this. All things are possible with you. If God can speak everything in the creation... By the way, did you know God does not need the secular model of evolution to bring about existence. And I know there's so many scientists out there and there's all these peer reviews and there's all these articles about everything. And honestly, it creates a whole lot of confusion and I don't know where you are with all that. But the Bible clearly states that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And it goes on and it speaks that he created all things within six days. Did you know those six days don't align with the evolutionary model of the, the, the way that things were developed? There's good websites out there that'll give you charts of what the secular model is, and they say this happened, and this happened, and this happened. It does not align with the Bible. The Bible's different. The Bible has, God has spoken forth the way that he made it, and it's not an allegory. And I heard some preacher the other day, and he said there's, there's, there's no evidence at all that God did anything in a certain order of time. I'm saying, well, what about the six days that are clearly mentioned in Genesis chapter 1? See, that's somebody who has bought into a lot of theories without a lot of facts. You know who was never there seven point so many billion years ago? Human beings were not there. Our nation is only a couple hundred years old. Time is not, does not have to be millions and billions of years for things to exist. God made all things simply by speaking them. That's the power of our Creator. And here's what Jesus did in his prayer. He recognized something, a great reality. He said, God... All things are possible from you. You say, but pastor, I've got cancer. God can heal you. You say, but pastor, that person, they're on life support. Hospice is called in. God can heal them. You say, but pastor, my marriage is so destroyed. There's no help for it. God can heal, help it. You say, but my kids, they've got so many handicaps and disabilities. God can do something there too. You say, preacher, but I'm so overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. I never get any peace. God's able. You know why? Because all things are possible with God. That's the reality of the world that we live in. The question is, do you have the relationship enough to go to him and say, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, I believe that all things are possible from you. And the lack of faith is often what causes people to continue to struggle in these fleshly lives that we live because they don't believe that all things are possible with God. Jesus did. That's the difference in his prayer and the sleepy apostles who probably barely uttered a few words while they were there in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed, two, four things you're noting. First one, the relationship. Second thing is the reality. The third one is his reason. He had a reason for praying. He didn't just pray nonchalantly in an empty prayer of repetition. He had a reason. What was his reason? He said, Father, I want this cup to pass from me. I don't want this divine appointment. He had a reason. And then the fourth one is probably the greatest, and I think a lot of people are looking for this, but I just don't think they'll ever get the first three down to get to the fourth one. You know what Jesus had when he concluded his prayer? I'll read it one more time. He said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. You know what he had? He had rest. 
because he accepted the fact that the outcome would be based on the will of his father, and that was something that he, he knew without a shadow of a doubt was not out of anger, but it was out of love from his father. And it was according to the will of the father. It brought rest. That's how you pray. The relationship, the reality, the reason, and it ends with the rest. Jesus was concerned for his disciples, and his solution for, their, for the concern was watch and pray. But why does he say watch and pray? Look back at verse 38 with me. He says, watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. That's, that, that's all he says. He says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The, the believer's greatest work is to watch and pray, but watch this. Did you know the greatest failure of a born-again child of God is this? To enter into temptation and sin? Your greatest work is to watch and pray, but your greatest failure is sin. Sin. Why do I say that? It's simply because of the word temptation. Temptation means enticing one to sin. It means to test one's faith to where they get to a point of coming short of the glory of God. Temptation is all around us. It's even more so today than it ever has been. Maybe you're tempted now. You know what tempts us? These phones that we have, and I don't even know where mine got to, but those things are a great temptation. In church services, they're a temptation. People get distracted looking at their phone and flipping through, not realizing that the devil is utilizing that little bitty instrument so that your ears would be stopped long enough to miss some seed from God's Word that He's trying to help you with. See, temptation's all around us. There's other temptations of the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. These temptations bring us to a place of sin, and the greatest failure of a believer is sin. Now follow me with this. Jesus' cup, what was this cup? It was a divine appointment, but Jesus wasn't concerned about death. If anything, his agony was so great in verse 34, exceedingly sorrowful unto death, he was at the point of feeling as though he was about to die right there in the garden. He had already told him multiple times he was going to experience death. So the death was not the problem. It wasn't a physical thing with Jesus, that he was cowering in, under fear because he was going to be beaten by the Romans and eventually come to the point of death. The cup that Jesus wished to pass away from him was that he would be separated from the Heavenly Father. You say, I don't understand. Well, let me explain something about God. God is a holy trinity. Past, present, and future for all of eternity, he has been consistently the same. There's been perfect fellowship through Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Never once has one had to look away from the other or the other had to look away from the one. But at one time in history, one great event in history that took place on a Roman cross on the hill of Golgotha, there were three hours of darkness that covered the entire land as Jesus hung on that cross. And it was when the Father could no longer look on His Son. And the reason is, is because Christ became sin for us. Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll show you the passage. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 21, last verse in the chapter. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. 
not that we didn't know any sin, but that he didn't know any sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, if sin is the greatest failure of a believer, and the reason why sin is the greatest failure of a believer is because sin is the one thing that separates us from God. You say, aren't there other things? No, it's all, it's all fallen into the basket of sin. That's the thing that separates us from God. To a lost person, why are they going to go to hell? Because they're a sinner. To a saved person, why do they not walk closely with the Lord? Because of sin. Sin is the one thing that has been the, the consistent thread throughout Scripture for the reason why God Almighty planned a work to redeem mankind was simply because of sin. Why did God the Creator become a man? Simply because of sin. Why did God prepare the Levitical law and the Mosaical law of the Old Testament for the sacrifices and, and the work there through the priests because of sin. Sin is the greatest failure of a believer, and sin is the thing that Jesus, when he went to that cross, he knew for that moment the Father could not look on him because he was going to be made sin for us. He who knew no sin, Jesus was without sin, but all sin was put on the Son of God and for three hours, the father could not look upon his son. And that was the cup that Jesus wanted to pass away from him. And that tells us that our greatest failure is sin. And every time we sin, it's a great failure in our lives. And how do you overcome sin? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. That's the, it's the same mantra, and it has been since the very beginning. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. In the Garden of, uh, of Eden, when, when Adam should have been there with his wife to help her, when she began to correct God's word and question the truth about that tree, he wasn't there. He wasn't watching and praying. So they entered into temptation, and she failed because of her her desire to change the word of God, and then she took part in that forbidden tree. As time goes on, others along the way throughout history, they weren't watching and praying. How about David when he should have been at war, and yet there he was at the castle, and he looks out across the homes, and there's Bathsheba. David, this man who was the apple of God's eye, and he goes and he gets Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, then later murders her husband. He's sinned. Why? He stopped watching. He stopped praying. He entered into temptation and he sinned. It's the same thing. And it's the same in our lives. And our greatest failure is sin. You know why? Because it's sin that was poured out on the Son of God 2,000 years ago. And the same sin that I'll commit tomorrow is a sin that Jesus suffered and died for 2,000 years ago. Same sin. And therefore, I ought to watch and pray so that I wouldn't be guilty of sin and I wouldn't be guilty of trodden underfoot the work of the Son of God and somehow dishonoring the work of Jesus Christ in my life that I'd watch and pray and avoid the sin because it's the greatest failure of a believer. Entering into temptation again, these men did in fact do that. Let me move on here. I had some more in the message, but I want to get you to the end here. The third thing I want to talk to you about are the greatest friends to any believer, and I believe they're in the passage. Verse 38 again in Mark chapter 14. I'll be wrapping up with this. He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He says, the spirit truly is ready. And that just means willing. But the flesh 
is weak. The greatest friends that any believer has, and I believe even a lost person can have these same friends, is first off, number one, the Spirit. He says the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the fact that when we lead ourselves, when we're, when we're led about into temptation and eventually into sin, it's because we're not walking in the Spirit. And why are we not walking in the Spirit? Because we've grieved Him because we're living in sin. We've quenched Him because we're not walking by faith. But if we'd, if we'd walk in the Spirit and abide in the Lord Jesus and, and, and lean on that Spirit of God, it's the Spirit that'll be our friend. The flesh is our enemy. The flesh is our enemy. It's weak. It's feeble. And the flesh will always come up short to glorify God. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Got a passage here I'll share with you here as I'm wrapping this message up. Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 5 through 8 with me. The Spirit is our friend. And Paul here, he addresses so many things concerning the flesh and the Spirit in the book of Romans. But in chapter 8, pick up in verse 5, he says this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Did you know if you're, if you're living in the flesh, you'll always think fleshly? I can always tell when I get around someone who is walking with the Lord because they will be spiritually minded in their actions in their life. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. As you've grown a little bit more spiritually, you've probably gotten to a point where certain people, you just know you didn't jive well with them because everything they thought about was fleshly. But when you get around somebody who they're in the Spirit, you just get this sensation, this feeling. You know that they're minding the things of the Spirit, not the things of the flesh. And in this case, look what it says, they that are after the flesh, they do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. That means to go back to the flesh after you've been saved. That's death. You're wasting your life. The wages of sin is still death. There's no reward in that, no fruit. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And often people are looking for peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. There's an animosity there. There's, there's tension there. God does not love the flesh. Because it's cursed, it's sinful, it's unclean. And so there's an enmity there when we mind the things of the flesh over the things of the Spirit. Look at verse 7. For it is not subject to the law of God. The flesh will never be. It will always break the law. That's the problem with the flesh. Neither indeed can be. It can't, it can't find its way. You remember with the law, Miss, uh, I was talking to Miss Doris earlier this morning. She was uh, just sharing something with me, and I thought it was interesting. But, you know, the law of God was something that could never be kept by man. Never. For all those years, you say, wait, I thought the people of Israel, I thought they kept the law. No, they tried to, but every year they failed. Can you believe that? And they had a perfect record of failure. Perfect record. For hundreds of years, God gave them that law. And every year they tried, they failed. Every year they tried, they failed. Every year they... And they failed again. Next year, failed again. Could you imagine? You'd probably give up. How many of y'all have ever played sports before? And if you lost every game, you'd probably think, I'm no good at this. I need to give up. And these guys, every single year, they tried to keep the law, always failing. Until one man came, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived sinless and perfect. He kept every point of the law. He did everything that was required of him by the Father. He never once failed, even one time in the law. And when he went to the cross... And he died, you know what he did? He fulfilled the law. 
He fulfilled that. Christ, though he was, though he was manifested in the flesh, he abided in the will, will of the Father, and he always walked in the Spirit. And that's why he was able to overcome. And I know we could get theologically here about him being 100% God and couldn't come short, but he also put, him forth, put, his for, put himself forth as a man that he might be tempted at all points as we're tempted, and yet without sin so that he might become sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God, not because of our merit or our sinless nature, but simply because of the Son of God. But in the flesh, I'll never achieve that. And that's what Paul's speaking about here in Romans 8. If you walk in the flesh, just expect fleshly things to come out. Then look at verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh, what does it say? Cannot please God. See, our greatest friend is the Spirit, but if I continue to live in the flesh in my life, I cannot please God with that. And so I have to learn to bring the flesh into its subjective place. And then I've got to learn to walk in the Spirit of God that God would be glorified, Christ would be exalted, and that I might please my Creator and be filled with the power of God in me. And the Spirit will be a great help and a friend to me. The other one is the Son of God. I think that's a given. Jesus, the Son of God, is a great friend to all believers. He went to the garden, so I wouldn't have to. He prayed to the Father, so I wouldn't have to. At that time is what I'm saying. He took the cup so that I wouldn't have to. I couldn't anyway. I mean, I'd come short. He hung on the cross, so I wouldn't have to. Otherwise, there'd be no hope for us if we didn't have Christ. Hell would be our destination. There'd be no heaven. There'd be no street of gold. There'd be no great throne with, the, with that water flowing out of it. There'd be none of that. No mansions in heaven. Hell would be our only place. Hot and horrible, filled with misery. But yet Christ did what he did. And when I was studying this out, I thought of this song. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There is no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. Jesus is a great friend to sinners. And if not for Jesus, we'd have no hope at all. The third thing I added this morning when I was meditating on this was the Scriptures. I think the Scriptures are a great help to us because here we are reading the passage. Just a handful of verses here, verses 32 to 42, and we read about this great event and what Jesus has said here that he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. We've got the scriptures. And the scriptures are a great friend to each one of us. And I sure hope you love that Bible that you've been blessed with because there was a lot of blood shed that we might have it today. And we find more and more that Christians take the word of God for granted. We ought to become students of the word and labor over it night and day that we might allow this to be that lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In conclusion, our greatest work is to watch and pray. But our greatest failure is sin. Despite the sin, we find our greatest friends are the Spirit, the Son of God, and the Scriptures. It could be that maybe something concerning your own life today some failure has come to the surface and to your mind. You know there's a sin there that is hindering you and, 
something has, has hindered your watching and your praying. And you know, this morning, here's what I love about the Scriptures. We're told, for the child of God, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And even though I come short of His glory and I don't watch and pray like I should, if I'm ready to confess those sins, it says if we confess our sins, that the Father is faithful and just to forgive us of sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. That's a passage of Scripture that says, hey, I'm ready to receive you back. And the Son of God, He went to the cross to die for us so that we might be restored. Not that we would be defeated, not that we would be overcome by the world, but that we would be restored. Restored in a good relationship with the Father, but also restored in our walk in this world. And today it could be you need some restoration. Come to the Son of God. Call on His name. Come to the Father and cry out, Abba, Father. And I believe He'll hear you this morning. Won't you come? Um, Blake, would you come up here and help us out with the song this morning? And it could be somebody needs the altar this morning. I sure hope maybe you do. And if you do, let the Word of God continue to work in your heart and just be faithful not to quench the Spirit of God this morning as we stand to our feet, heads bowed, eyes closed. You don't even have to wait for the altar. How about you this morning? Is there something you need to bring up here? Ronnie's going to start singing. Blake will start playing. Something you need to bring to the altar this morning. Abba, Father. Maybe you need to watch. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you've already been overcome by the temptation and you're already in the sin. Just know this. Christ can cleanse you of that sin. The Father will forgive you for that sin, but He'll only do it through His Son. Only through His Son. Call on the name of Jesus this morning. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, Today is a day to have that addressed as well. By faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. Let the Holy Spirit have His way. The altar's open this morning. Won't you come?